What's going on guys, AJ here back again with a very different and exclusive episode of the E1B2 podcast. So uh, the last three and a half months, I've been doing a lot of speaking, a lot of advising, a lot of great opportunities have come my way. Um, and what you're about to hear right now is a segment of a Q&A off the backs of a an amazing panel discussion with a company called Staffbase. They uh, have an amazing product. They're doing a lot of great things globally. And uh, I was blessed enough um, to come onto their, their platform and be a part of a panel. Uh, during the panel, we were not able to get, uh, we were not able to execute all of the, the questions at the very end. And so we decided to schedule another call, another panel discussion going over some of the questions. We got through about six or seven questions. I believe there's three or four that you guys are going to be able to hear. Uh, it's myself. It's uh, Priya Bates. It's uh, a few other individuals that are amazing in the world of internal comms. And we're doing our best to try to provide value to those that are inevitably going to be listening, engaging and tuning in. And so what you're going to hear is uh, a couple different things. First and foremost, you're going to hear just our raw answers and our raw perspectives and just the raw you know, uh, audio of the of the Q&A. And then what you're also going to hear is uh, just a few thoughts, perspectives that we genuinely believe and feel. And, and I hope that it brings value. And then the final thing that you're going to hear is you're going to hear a little bit of a um, you're going to hear me jump back in here in about 19 minutes or so, because there was a little bit of a break. And then we jump back in to the rest of the of the of the episode. Um, so I do apologize about that. But I promise you guys will enjoy this episode. I promise you guys will enjoy what we all have to say. And thank you, Statbase, for the amazing opportunity. I hope everyone that listens to the E1B2 podcast enjoys this episode. Thanks a lot. How can we speak the C-suite's language to help them see the business value in supporting and leading a more diverse and inclusive business? Yeah, it, you know, I think it's interesting. I don't. I, I, I would say ideally, um, like AJ, it's, it, it should be a totally different world. I don't think that we should be speaking the C-suite's language. The C-suite should be speaking our language um, because, like you said, the internal comms and the HR, uh, they are the ones that have their hands on the pulse of what the people are doing and what the culture of the organization is. And when you do have a, a C-suite person, um, an executive level person that, that gets it and that uh, doesn't have to have his arms tied behind his back in order to get the buy-in of what could work. Um, so I think it's one of those things where it may seem idealistic, but it is the, the next course of action to have um, women and people of color in the C-suite, and preferably if they did actually have some type of background with working with company culture, with working with the actual people, because they come into it with the background of knowing how the meat and potatoes, which are the people of the company, uh, actually function and what they desire and what they require to have a, a happy um, and productive working environment. So that is the challenge that we're kind of faced with. It's like, okay, so how do we get more of us in the C-suite? And I think that it goes back to the onus of the people taking more ownership of how much space and how much real estate they actually have in a company. 
Um, and it's not so much to the extreme of now everyone has to go on strikes. But if everyone uh, at the core uh, said, you know what, no, you got this wrong. You know, a lot of the executives are going to have their hands, then they will end up with their hands tied behind their back. Um, but I think it's such a lofty idea. It feels like such um, a challenge or, you know, it's like uprooting an entire um, system that can seem daunting and overwhelming that we start to believe that it's not possible. So in a way, I think that we should have to uh, create different types of programming and different types of um policies that work with the end in mind, even if that end in mind isn't but 10 years out. What are the things that we can put in place that empower people, um, especially the HR um, you know, leaders and the uh, internal comm leaders to feel like we're making incremental progress to changing the policies that eventually will make it to the top. So it feels we want to tackle and tear down um, the big infrastructure, which is kind of like these groups and these clubs and these cliques of CEOs and what I call CMOs and CMOMOs and CF, you know, whatever. Um, but then ultimately, it has to be someplace where we feel empowered. So what are the smaller things that we can do that, you know, my willing white sisters, my willing white brothers can do alongside uh, people of color so that we can feel in accord. Um, at that point, we can march forward, you know, um, collectively, and then hopefully start to kind of knock down a domino by a domino by a domino, so that we can see some change. Great point. Great point. I think now would be a nice point to move to the next question. So maybe Shahara, you want to lead the panel, and then we just see what we do. So, is unconscious bias and implicit bias the same thing? Uh, no, I don't think that unconscious bias and implicit bias are the same thing. They're kind, they, they kind of run uh, parallel and then sometimes they merge tracks. And I had said um, in, in the original webinar that it is your in, it is your implicit you know, implicit bias and unconscious bias are, are the same thing. I kind of confuse it with the microaggressions, but implicit bias and unconscious bias are the same thing. It's just your, your, your mind, uh, scientifically, it's just jumping to some conclusions because it needs to get to uh, quicker assumptions. So you're there making assumptions and you're there making um, kind of the this, this stereotypes and you're jumping to conclusions so that you can continue to move through what your brain is trying to process. So they do operate in the same way, but then they also come out in microaggressions. I believe that the unconscious bias is kind of what happens unconsciously, but then the microaggressions are what are expressed. And it's the phrases, it's the way that you communicate, it's the way that you're attempting to connect with people, but then find out that you're using uh, language and words and logic that is not based in fact. It's based off of um, bits and pieces of information that's been sold to you, kind of um, uh, programmed into you, that isn't completely accurate to the real identity of the people of color and the other types of ethnicities and cultures that you may be dealing with. So when it comes to unconscious and implicit bias, it's literally just, you don't even know. And then you end up saying some stupid stuff, and then you end up offending someone, but then to defend yourself and protect yourself from sounding ignorant, you then don't listen to the people and say, oops, I made a mistake. So that's kind of like the basic of it. Any fools? I'm, I'm always, I'm always going to let the women go. For, so you guys, one of you guys can go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
it really you don't have to do that anthony sorry we're all fine with you my mom my mom raised me like that so that's cool sorry to jump in um i just want to well does everyone or does anyone have another call at like we're all in different time zones but in 30 minutes from now i just am conscious that we're all in question i do yeah i i have to i have to go at 10 30. okay yeah so um let's just maybe not have everyone answer every question just like one or two people um i guess if you don't feel like the question is super relevant to you like let someone else answer it not ever needs to input on every question so maybe we move on to or anthony say a little thing yeah on to the next question after that um, yeah, I was just going to yeah second everything she said. I think she broke it down perfectly. Um, the only thing I would add around kind of just understanding the differences and then actually making change is stripping away ego. I've been on this big kick for a while here recently, just thinking a lot about it. Um, I recently went through something where I had to strip away ego. And then I was in this weird mode where I was just like thinking about all these different scenarios that I was in through my short here career. And I just so many moments could have been handled differently with the C-suite executives. So many, you know, situations could have been handled differently with employees if we just simply tripped away ego. And that's what she was saying at the very end of it, which is not being afraid to say, you know what, I was wrong. This, this, this perspective that I had, this assumption was programmed in my subconscious at some point in the last 25 years of my life. And I am not so arrogant or so stuck on being right, I am willing to say that my ego is taking over right now. Um, and, and last point of this, I was actually with a few friends and I remember his, my friend was, had a little too much wine and his fiance looked at him and said, calm down, honey, your ego is taking over. Just, and I think I, it was so kind of cute how she did it because she, it, it wasn't like belittling him, but it was more of a kind of acknowledgement of the fact that your ego is now taking over settle down and let's live into the reality. And I think more leaders need to do that. Now that's the perfect world. Yeah. I, I try to live in that, I guess that's fair. <laughs> great point. Great point. So our next question is in the same vein, how do we let the candidate comes on site to interview with different people from the company? If blind TVs were implemented in the you first want to one again, just because there was like a noise in the background. Okay, yeah, sure. In the same vein, how do we lessen the chance for bias when a candidate comes on site to interview with different people from the company if blind CVs were implemented in the first place? Hmm. Say that, say that last part again. That was a so, di- it's regarding blind CVs, so how do we lessen the chance for bias when a candidate comes on site and interviews with different people if the company requires blind C- blind CVs. I don't know if I like the idea of blind CVs either. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, so I don't know if I'll answer your question, uh, Hasina, uh, because what we're hearing more and more about blind CVs is it doesn't account for equity issues, right? So, so yes, you can put something in writing that says this person needs this many roles and, and the system takes over, but the system also is biased because because people haven't had the opportunities. So I know I know friends. Uh, I can talk to several uh, people that I mentor. Where if it was uh, a black woman that I mentored, and I've re- returned, I've gotten back in touch with a lot of these folks in the last few years. Five years later, they still have the same title. They've taken on more responsibility, 
they're delivering great things, but they still have the same title and the same, you know, they're still known as a coordinator, whereas that equivalent on the other side is now in a managerial position. So on a CV, it's not, even when you have a blind CV, it doesn't take account. So it's been interesting, the conversations that I've been having with clients and some of those initiatives that are taking place, it really is about acknowledging, actually coming forward with your identity and, and self-identifying. So where it used to be, and I'll say this myself, even as a Canadian uh, you know, East Indian woman, when I'd get the census in Canada and it would ask me to identify, I, I'd be a little offended and say, but I'm Canadian. You know, I've been here all my life. And, and now, I mean, I don't know if you guys get it, it's nodding. And, and so that was the impression we had. And now there's an education campaign about why you need to self-identify because you want to count yourself in. And, and, and because, they're, because that actually opens the eyes versus closes them. I don't know if anybody feels differently for me. I'd be curious about that. But I feel the blind CV issue actually uh, promoted the bias versus got, uh, went the other way. It's kind of like when people say, oh, I don't see color. Um, and even though that's altruistic and, you know, seemingly a, um, a very positive talk thing, uh, but it actually continues to perpetuate people's biases. Um, I am who I am, um, but I am qualified and my qualifications are the things that should be taken into consideration. How do you, and, and oftentimes now it starts to feel like, how do we police that or how do we protect uh, people's equal opportunity is the, the challenge. But again, that goes into a space of putting um, women and people of color uh, into those positions that can help educate almost laterally in those decision makers. Um, so there, it's almost like there has to be strategic positioning at all of the different junctures that could advance um, the positions and the, uh, and the progress of women and people of color. There almost needs to be like strategic placing so that we can have a checks and balances in the decision making. Um, and, and I think that's probably one of the systems that has to be kind of intrinsically broken down in a way to see how we can add a little bit to improve its process. Exactly. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar, I've seen the uh, Viola Davis video um, where she says like, you know, I went to this place, I've done Broadway, I'm off Broadway, I have the Oscar, I have the Tony, I have all of those things and I still don't get Meryl Street money. You know, and so I agree with Priya that we have to be careful when we're talking about like the, the blindness of it. And Shahara, you hit the nail right on the head because even if you stack it up, like, because this is where you're getting into um, equality versus equity, you know. And so when we say that we want everything to be equal and we're going to line these TVs up equally, you know, you're still not adding uh, taking into account like the black tax or the woman tax, you know, you call it the pink tax, or you know, all these other different reasons as to why I'm not here, you know. So, um, like my friends who are on the uh, administrative side, you know, they're like, I've been at Harvard, I've been busting my chops here, here, and here, I've been out of school 10 years. I'm just a, a coordinator, whereas, like, you know, our taller, lighter, whiter, blonder, you know, colleagues, like, you know, they're vice chancellors now, 
you know, and so again, how do you, so we go totally blind, we're not going to take into account like these particular nuances. And then the flip side of that is, how do you not come off as like a whiny baby? You know, because it's like, oh, give me this job because like, you know, I've been, you know, doing all these things that I can't exactly put on my CV, you know, so that's a question for you all who are doing a hiring, you know, on this side is, well, how do you have like these rounder, richer interviews where you can really get to the heart of like, because like Sherry said, like I can do the work, I'm qualified, you know, and then maybe I don't want to tell you my whole backstory. Do you want to hear my backstory? Probably not. But how can we get to like the heart of, like you said, like these strategic placements where I know you can do it, but we also don't want to put you on display as like, you know, the tragic, you know, person that we saved from the ghetto and gave like, you know, this really great job, but then just get to the heart of like, I can do this work. I'm a good person, but there have been these things to impede me, but we don't want to talk about those things. Like, just, just take me, hire me and don't be weird about it. I don't know if we answered your question, Asina. <laughs> no, he's asking. He just disagreed with it. <laughs> um, AJ, I think I will redirect the next question to you. How can comms professionals help leaders accept and embrace the vulnerabilities that's involved in saying, I don't have the answer there. I'm here to learn and self-reflect. Join me in that, rather than avoiding the topic. Um, I don't have a great answer for this. Um, this has probably been uh, one of the weakest spots in my... That's not true. I'm, let me give myself some credit. I've, I've had success over time, but this has pr- probably been one of the weakest areas of my, my, my repertoire here, my skill sets, because um, you know, empathy and, and stripping away ego tends to come supernatural to me over time, and that's just due to certain situations that I was put in um, over the last six or seven years where I realized how small I really am in this world and how much life can really just decide to take things over and, and how much God really plays a factor in all these things. And I don't want to get too religious here because I know everyone has different points of views, but um, I know not everyone has had those circumstances. And so I try to live into empathy when having those conversations with leaders and I try to understand where they're coming from because all of their backgrounds are, are so different. And when I see someone being... Uh, having egos as their driving force, my brain automatically goes to how were you parented? What was your first internship? What, uh, you know, what, what flaws do you see within yourself that you're just masking? I immediately go there and it makes these, these C-suit executives freak out because I have no problem with anybody on this call, anybody period going deep into like who you are as an individual and you know, getting getting to the core, I have no problem going there, and I tend to to go there a little too fast. Um, the tip that I would give to anyone else trying to do that, because I do think that's the answer. I do think you have to build that emotional glue and get them to unlock a little bit, because they're not going to unlock and strip away their ego at at a very surface professional level relationship. They're not going to do that. They're going to look at you know, look at the credibilities, look at all their. Their diplomas on the wall. They're going to look at their salary, and they're going to stand by that ego. They're going to stand by that that uh, that 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 title they have and that responsibility they have. But uh, but if you as an internal comms individual within the company, or if you as a as a CHRO, whatever your title is, kind of connected to the people trying to get the C-suite executive to strip away that ego, if you can build that emotional glue over time, 
which for me takes a lot of repetition and a lot of consistent conversations. At some point, you will be able to kind of crack that code and get them to strip away that ego. Um, because in my personal experience, it is not easy to do. Um, yeah, it just doesn't happen incredibly often. So uh, it probably wasn't a great answer. Um, but uh, that's just my that's my reality, if I'm being honest. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? I'd probably say that vulnerability and authenticity is kind of hot right now, right? <laughs> uh, we had the, a lot of conversations. It was interesting being at the IABC World Conference and how often those words came up for the first time um, uh, through, you know, when we were talking about leadership. Um, and part of that is because of even the, looking at how different leaders around the world have managed COVID and managed, uh, you know, crises um, and, and those that have prevailed, you know, at Jacinda Ardern, for instance, is because of the empathy and the vulnerability that has been displayed. So all of a sudden it's becoming a good thing. And then, you know, combined with that, this great unknown that we seem to be in, regardless of what the situation is, um, it's okay for people to say, I don't know when I don't know. Hey, what's going on, guys? So as I told you before, there will be a little bit of a break. So you guys may not get the flow of the conversation, but we're going to jump right back into the Q&A. I do apologize. The, the recording shut down on us. Uh, there were a few things that I, I didn't want you guys to hear. We were trying to uh, clear up a few things, and I just wanted to be respectful to all those that are inevitably listening. We were talking about D. E and I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so there was a few things that we were saying that were that could potentially be a little controversial. So we did not want to um, have you guys listen to that just to be respectful of all of the different voices, perspectives, uh, and, and, and ears that are going to be inevitably tuning in. But what I can say is this entire Q&A is around D, E, and I. There's so much value here. So please continue to listen. I guarantee the next 30 minutes or so, you guys will definitely enjoy. Thanks a lot. No longer let's throw out the big launch and leave campaign and never look at it again. They're actually wanting to see movement. And that doesn't mean you have to have everything. And, and you actually get more credit. And I think a lot of people don't realize this. And this is the conversation I have with a lot of my clients is you get a lot more credit if you're having a consistent conversation over time that shows progress than you have with a big advertising campaign that I call launch and leave campaign that you say, I've got this big values program or I've got this big diversity inclusion program. And then you never open it again. And then you, you do something the year after again. Right? <laughs> like, so, so I think it's really thinking, we have to think about things differently. And the, the, the way we're trying to deliver things right now, it's actually better, it's easier, it's probably more cost-effective, it, and it, it's definitely less snazzy, but it's definitely more real and authentic. Completely agree, so we have this next question. What is everyone's opinion on anti-bias policies that involve forms available for people to report bias incidences straight to their CEO? So can you repeat that question one more time? I'm sorry, can you repeat it? 
So what are your thoughts on anti-bias policies that involves forms available for people to report bias incidences straight to their CEO? And like whistleblowing lines or hotlines and all that stuff? I feel yeah, like in a way, maybe it could be a, um, a second uh, form of a strategy or tactic or, you know, an, an outlet for those who are exhausted, for sure. But I think the frontline approach should be about empowering people to feel okay with uncomfortable conversations, uh, teaching the people who are probably uh, more so of the culprits of, you know, microaggressions and maybe saying the wrong things or speaking out of turn or continuously interrupting women, you know, maybe providing them with um, more education training on look, this may be happening. So when it happens to you, you know, know that this should be how you should respond. Um, and then also educating uh, those who may be dealing with the infractions on how they should be approaching these conversations. Because sometimes that's where it first happens. Like, oh, my God, he keeps interrupting me in a meeting. I don't even know how I'm supposed to talk to him about this. You know, and then and then it boils up. She never says anything. He has no idea until it becomes a thing where now HR is involved. And then it becomes, oh, my gosh, it's a whole thing. Instead, people need to just get comfortable with having these uncomfortable conversations. Again, going back to removing, you know, the ego, uh, but being able to be a good listener. Um, and, and then if, in fact, it's still kind of, you know, is happening, then, of course, you're going to have to uh, go to other measures. But I think maybe introducing a policy and letting that be the first thing that people do, then it doesn't give people an opportunity to actually have the discourse that's necessary. Um, and I think that that's what we're all trying to avoid and almost pretend like it's not happening. And now I'm going and having a mediator come through it when these are just we're on we're on the battlefield. We got to have these conversations with each other and um, we got to be we, we can't be so careful to offend someone or be afraid that someone's going to get angry. You know, we I think we just have to change the, the, the culture of how we're having conversations and, and uncomfortable circumstances. Um, I definitely think there probably needs some type of process or policy uh, for fail safe, uh, but maybe not the, the go to thing, because then all of a sudden I'm going to look like a tattletale. And since kindergarten, ain't nobody like a tattletale. So, you know. If, yes, every oh, go ahead. no, no, go ahead. I, I can have my, my things 20 seconds long, so go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say I agree, particularly with um, people of color. First of all, it's hard for people of color, particularly women, to even get comfortable with reporting because um, when you go through these processes, okay, so I made my report, I filed my report. Sometimes going through the um, HR or on the academic side, like the equity and diversity process can be more traumatizing than the actual event because the reporting process and the disciplinary process is still skewed towards the company, is still skewed towards the organization. So now I put all this energy into filing this report and then nothing has happened and then I have to walk back into a space where, you know, now I'm the tattletale. You know, so I believe that having the box you know, of, okay, this is what's happening, you know, you should definitely have a reporting structure. But then you also have to, have to have the people who are reading the reports, you know, say like, okay, this is a trend, you know, okay, Sally Sue, Miss May, and all of them are saying the same thing about this one person, you know, or this is something that keeps happening. So now we need to develop, um, as Priya was saying, like an event, an action plan around this situation. So maybe we do need to have the, this is how we talk to each other. This is how we're respectful in meetings. You know, 
going, you know, ticking up the line, but just like a simple, like, oh, here, here, I filed out my report, and I'm submitting it, you know, sometimes that can also backfire on you. So you have to have, like, both, you know, have the reporting instance, uh, have the reporting structure, but then make sure, like, okay, who's reading these reports? Okay, now let's make sure that the reporting system in a disciplinary system isn't like a re-traumatizing event, you know, and then back on the back end, how can we circle back to make sure that we're still dealing with company culture? So use it as a, I don't want to say tool, but just use like, you know, as like step one towards. Um, that, that's, that's perfect. Oh, sorry. I heard a, I heard a kickback on there. Is there an echo in my voice? No, just hearing things. Sorry. I just had something to add for 20 seconds. Um, when, when I first got into entrepreneurship and business at 19, I, uh, I had a mentor tell me, try to push me to understand the importance of personal development. So he would talk to me about Tony Robbins and Brian Tracy and all these kind of like gurus. And I would get really freaked out because I was like, is this like a network marketing thing? Like, like what is, what is really happening here? What is, what does personal development have to do with business? And now it's finally hitting me in my head, probably the last two to three years. Everything we've been talking about this entire call, is all around personal development. If the issue that you guys see at the sweet, sweet, C-suite level or in an organization overall is a personal development issue. If people have ego, if people don't know how to communicate, if people don't know how to have empathy, if people don't know how to kind of live into someone's reality, if people don't know how to kind of deal with stressful moments and kind of break those things down and make everyone calm, then there's obviously going to be problems. And so for me, it's around personal development. And uh, what I've seen is people just simply are not personally developed. People are not simply in touch with their own spirituality, whatever that means for them individually. People are not confident within their, their own ability. People are not clear in their own mind. People have so much other things they're dealing with in life. Um, and so I, I don't know, just a tip that I would give randomly is probably people need to start working on themselves more and that will show up better at, at the organization. No, it's, yeah, I'll, real quick, real quick, I promise this is relevant. So um, when I was at Colgate, um, Colgate is known for being like the breeding ground, like the, um, the, the place where you go if you want to be on Wall Street and become a CEO. And so like my first like week on campus, there was a young African-American woman and she had her hair like super big. You know, it was like it was beautiful, but it was like super big. And she was um, working the desk at the library, and it was like three or four young white males that came by her in her face, like, like, ah, look at her hair, it's so big, oh my god, you know. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, as you know, as a southerner, I'm like, clutching my pearls. But then as a person, I'm like, that's as AJ said, that's really poor home training because a, you don't point at people, you don't laugh at people, and you don't, you don't talk about someone's hair. So that's just general. Then we're not even going to talk about you. Don't talk about a black woman's hair, and you don't point at a black woman. You know, but these young men, I'm just some years ago, I'm sure they're somewhere on Wall Street right now, living their best lives, you know, making decisions about other people's lives. You know, but in that moment, they were taught that it was okay. It's totally okay for you to point at and laugh at someone who's different from you. You know, and maybe in that moment, maybe it was my job to be like, hey, don't y'all do that. You know, but then I'm also like, I'm trying to get my stuff and get out the library as well. So, but then I always had that question of like, if people are just erased poorly, you know, what do you do about that? And then we have these institutions, you know, that 
reaffirm that, like, oh, you're at Colgate. Like, yeah, it is totally okay for you to behave like that because you have, quote-unquote, paid your dues, and now you can go, like, rule the world. And so <laughs> it's these, like, little... And chances are they aren't. They haven't paid their dues, right? Yeah, but the chances are they're, they're, the, they're, they're the legacy uh, acceptance, right? So what they all talk about, I love what Michelle Obama says, right? That you know, we talk about affirmative action. What's been happening in those big universities for years? <laughs> but we're we're digressing. We probably yeah, I don't be. want to digress, but it's like it's, <laughs> but it's that, that idea that you are in an it's in an institution that reaffirms your identity to be able to be this person that can point and look what we know in general society like that's that's not okay. And then we breed. Oh, but we're breeding these people to be a CEO, right? So it's it's highly complex, right? Yes, you know. Do we, we have got into four questions. questions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just recap this time round. So my final question from the um, panel was, as an external consultant, how can I, as a third party outside of business, act to improve DNI with my clients and their businesses? Well, it depends on your role, right? I think that uh, uh, what I'm uh, seeing is... Um, a lot of DE&I uh, consultants who are starting to come into organizations because they're being called in there right now, which is very promising. So a lot of experts and what's nice for a change, and, and I don't want to uh, devalue somebody who's not, uh, who's white and is a DE&I consultant because I'm sure you come from a, a, a place of a lot of passion um, uh, and, and, and need, want to make change. But what I've seen as a trend uh, which is uh, which is people reaching out to those uh, uh, people of color, but Black Indigenous people of color, to inform this strategy, and that's been really exciting to see. So they're hearing those perspectives, um, and they're asking for them. So it's always great when they ask for them. Uh, it depends on your role because I point out DE and I when I think that there is a disconnect with what we're trying to deliver, right? Uh, uh, and I think that. There, as a consultant, as a communication consultant, I'm being, uh, I'm seeing uh, companies reach out as well to uh, to help support those strategies and and ask what they can do with the current atmosphere. So I think there's definitely an an, an opportunity right now, which is which is very exciting. I'm hoping that opportunity continues, um, and and we're seeing change. But uh, but uh, I I don't I don't know if anybody else feels. Uh, is there an opportunity where you're not being brought in as that expert and you point something out? I'm curious. I think maybe the best thing, at least for, for what I've done is, and it, it's been funny since maybe quarantine um, that I've tagged this, this, uh, my part, my new partnerships, I call them my willing white women, right? Because a lot of, the people who are hiring me on are white women. You know, they're, they're the ones that are working in HR. They're the ones that are working in the communication departments. They, and they're typically the, the decision makers when it comes to bringing me in for external um, uh, training for communication. So now it's like, ooh, I got this willing white woman who sees my value, understands my worth, um, knows the type of impact I can make. And now it's like, I have to continue to cultivate that relationship almost to the point where she becomes my best friend. So I am now trying to befriend uh, these 
these uh, decision makers who are typically white women so that now she and I can start to find our commonalities. Um, the, the thing that's happening a lot is, you know, people hire their friends. But if they were raised in homes where their friends did not include, you know, people of color, black women, black men, or whatever, then they're less likely to hire those people later. So now I'm like, oh, this is my opportunity to be friends, which is really the decision-making part of hiring. Um, so I look at my personal responsibility. It's almost like, let me, for every time I have the opportunity to build a strong connection with someone who is willing, um, then, then we can become friends. Then we can move and have conversations about what change really needs to happen. Then I, you know, she can share maybe her insecurities and her challenges in fighting the system or in the ways in which she's trying to make change. And then we can try to empower each other. So now we're locked arm in arm. She has another friend or willing person, decision maker. So now we come together as a team. It goes back to that space of almost like how do we um, come together on the ground, kind of in that almost a grassroots type of way. It's like when I find a willing white woman who is ready to work with me and then also then ready to kind of make a change with somebody else, I say, come on, Susan, let's do it. And But now we've become friends and it's a mutual benefit. And I think that is, that's where the change happens, where people find that um, knocking down some of these systemic processes that continue to leave people and push people out, it has to come with everyone feeling like we can all benefit. Just because we're in a race and in, in, in a fight for equity does not mean that it's gonna promote your oppression you can still find success, but let's also include others. But until that's a mutual, a mutually understood um, kind of contract between us and them and them and us, will we be able to find it? So the one thing I try to do as a small business owner, as an entrepreneur, is when I find people not like myself, who are on the same page as me, we're not just coworkers no more. You're not just my client, you're my friend now. Right, 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 right. I just want to give everyone an opportunity as we're wrapping up. One second, really quickly to just interrupt you, because um, I know Anthony you said you have a meeting right now. Just, I want to make sure we get this. Could everybody again just introduce yourself? Um, we'll probably put this just in the beginning of the video. I know you guys did this on the webinar, but I think it would be a good thing to have. So maybe if you just all go around and introduce yourself, um, and then Hasina will ask one more question at the end. Okay, shall we do the hey? We have the, my intro, then gave him to introduce himself then. Um, I think we have that already. Like, we can just crop that together. So I think if we just start, um, yeah, just start. Maybe Priya, do you want to start? And we can just go from there. Cool. Hello, I'm Priya Bates. Uh, I'm president of Inner Strength Communication, located in Toronto, Canada. And we help organizations enable, engage, and empower their employees to manage change and deliver business results. Hi, I'm Shahara Downing, and I am the founder of Levelcom LLC, and uh, we teach public speaking skills, helping women professionals and entrepreneurs improve their public speaking skills uh, by increasing their credibility, their confidence, and their clarity. You can go, Alicia. Hello, everyone. I am Berlisa.
Alicia Morton. I am an independent scholar and performance artist. My academic work deals with um, policy issues around black women and queer folks in educational spaces. And my artistic work deals with black folks and um, queer people and women of color in non-traditional educational spaces. What's going on, guys? My name is Anthony Vaughn. Uh, I like to be called AJ, so please do that. I am the uh, founder of the E1B2 Collective. Uh, pretty much what we do is we work with startups and small businesses to operationalize employee experience. Great. So just as a wrapping up now, just a final thought or tip to all our listeners. How can they start working towards a more diverse, equitable and inclusive workplace? Anyone wants to go? <laughs> you know, I'm not going first. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know what? Uh, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for listening right now. Um, and I love uh, a lot of the conversation about start with yourself first and start with what's inside. Um, there is, uh, I will do a, uh, a plug for uh, a uh, colleague of mine who I think is doing incredible work in this space. His, his name is Dr. Lino Caraman Cherry. He uh, works with a company called Mesh Diversity. And what I am really impressed with from his system perspective is that they actually do um, surveys that and uh, 360s to talk about those sociological, uh, e e emotional intelligence areas in individuals and the impressions they leave with the people they deal with. And it's the most holistic system I've ever seen. Uh, and so it actually is a process you go through and survey that you go through that you understand more about yourself and you can't game it, which is really fascinating. The other thing, uh, Evita is not here today, but what we've done is uh, we've started uh, a, a leader like me. So you'll see a little bit about that on uh, LinkedIn and we're really there to support. We're starting with, with uh, uh, black indigenous people of color women um, right now, because we're just getting it off the, the ground, but it really is to help uh, build the confidence and courage uh, because even as we see the opportunities become available, what we're finding is that those that are stepping up for those uh, opportunities are either afraid to or they're afraid of what people will think of them once they get there. So we want to make sure that there's a really there's strong training and there's strong uh, support network that's available to these women and eventually others uh, as they progress through their career. Because I don't think that there's ever been a better opportunity. So look up, look for us at aleaderlikeme.com. I get maybe I'll slide in there. I usually I usually wait for you guys. I usually slide in. There. I'll slide in here now. Um, I think I think the last thing I want to say is really simple, guys. Um, you know, personal development is key. That's just what I've been thinking about this entire time. Um, people need to kind of spend some individual time and really work on themselves. Um, educate themselves around not just what we're talking about today. Just educate themselves on on what they need to to do to be a better person. Because if you show up as a better person inside of a company. Um, the other stuff that you do, right, your deliverables, your day-to-day -day tasks, you guys know how to do that. You've been trained for years to be able to do that. Um, but it's really about the relationships. It's really about the ego. It's really about the communication that uh, I think people need to work on. Um, the tasks and the day-to-day -day work, uh, I think we all would agree. You, you can learn that pretty quickly and, and implement that in your sleep once you've done it over and over and over again. But you have to from my experience, you have to consistently work on improving yourself. And so that would be, I guess, my, my, my biggest tip that I would leave everybody with.